Good afternoon, brothers and sisters, and also visitors. A hearty welcome to all of you present here. And if you've joined us online, a hearty welcome to you too. It's such a great blessing that we may be here a second time to join together in worship of our triune God. May the preaching of the gospel message direct our hearts and minds in faith and trust to our faithful saviour, Jesus Christ, and cause us to praise him in all we do. Consistory has the following announcements. Brother Keith van der Leer has arrived with attestation from the Free Reformed Church of Rockingham, and we welcome Keith into our congregation. This afternoon's worship service will be led by Brother Dathan Plater. In preparation for worship, let's join our voices together and sing from hymn 24, verses 2, 3 and 4. Good afternoon, brothers and sisters. Let us rise and worship our resurrected Savior. As we come to worship God's name, we confess that our help is in the name of the Lord who made heavens and earth. And God greets you this afternoon. Grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us continue our worship and sing from Psalm 8 of God's beauty and creation. Psalm 8 verses 1 through 5.
We now, with the churches of all ages and places, we make confession of our Catholic undoubted Christian faith. And this afternoon, we'll do so with the words of the Nicene Creed. So, congregation, please say with me in your hearts, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all ages, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten not made of one substance with the Father through whom all things were made. Who for us, men in our salvation, came down from heaven and became incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who spoke through the prophets. And we believe one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins, and we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Let's now praise God and sing in response using hymn 9. Hymn 9. Let's now come before God and pray. Let's pray together. Dear God and Heavenly Father, we praise you for Resurrection Sunday. Lord Christ, if you had not burst forth from the grave, who would have, you would have been just another statistic of this fallen, sinful life. Death would have conquered. Death would have had another victory in a long lineup of victories. It would mean that our sins are are in still of need of paying, and death still has a grip on us. And it would have meant that we would have no hope in this life, and we would be, of all men, most pitiable. But Lord Jesus, death could not contain you. The grave could not withhold you. And we praise you for this, that you obtained our salvation. You rose again from the dead. And so the grave no longer has its, has its sting. And so we gather as a people no longer doomed to die, but destined for eternity. Lord, what an amazing gift that is. We praise you for your mercy and for your grace. Lord, you are worthy of more praise than we could ever offer. 
And so we ask that our worship here this, uh, this afternoon, that it would join with the heavenly worship, that it would be sweetness to your ears and a fragrance of Christ. And Father, we thank you for your word, that we can gather around it for a second time. Your word, which is firm and sure and utterly reliable. Grant that we may not only be students of your word, but also practitioners, that we would be hearers and doers. Help us to realize that it's only through the Holy Spirit who opens blind hearts, or blind eyes, and, and softens hard hearts. May anything that is of yourself find a resting place in our hearts, and may anything that is of this world be free from us, that we would become more and more like our Savior Jesus Christ. We pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In connection with our confessional reading this afternoon, we're going to read from a few passages. And the the first is from Genesis, Genesis chapter 2. And we'll read Genesis 2, verse 4 through 17. And then also Genesis 3, and then a passage from the New Testament. So this afternoon we're going to be discussing where our sin and misery came from. And in Genesis 2 and 3, it gives us the answer to that. So Genesis 2, we'll read the verses 4 through 17. Hear now the word of the Lord. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field yet had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed." And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of, out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And then we'll also turn to Genesis 3, the next chapter, Genesis 3, and we'll read the verses 1 through 24. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to, to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she, she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil, now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and lives forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground for which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to God the way to the tree of life. And now let's turn to the New Testament to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 21. And this is where the Apostle Paul makes a connection between the first Adam and the second Adam, Jesus Christ. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the, have the grace of God and the free gift. By the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift flowing, following many trespasses brought justification. 
For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness led to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, God's grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So far from the reading of God's word, let us now sing in response Psalm 51, verses 1, 2, and 4, where we sing about the corruption of fallen man. Psalm 51, 1, 2, and 4.
continue our uh, our movement from our sin and misery in the catechism. We covered Lord's Day 2 last time, and now we move to Lord's Day 3, where it is asked and answered, Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? No, on the contrary, God created man good and in his image, that is, in true righteousness and holiness, so that he might rightly know God his creator, heartily love him, and live with him in eternal blessedness to praise and glorify him. From where then did man's depraved nature come? From the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve in paradise. For there our nature became so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. But are we so corrupt that we are totally unable to do any good and inclined to all evil? Yes, unless we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. So far from our confessional reading, we will sing in response to the preaching of the Gospel Hymn 74, verses 1 and 4. Dear congregation, greatly loved by our Lord Jesus Christ, have you ever asked yourself the question, how did I get here? And I don't mean by that when you, you know, happen to take a wrong turn and then you find yourself lost somewhere and then you say to yourself, where am I? How did, how did I get here? Rather, I mean those moments in your, in your life where you, you look at your life and maybe life is pulling you in all sorts of directions. There's ups, there's downs. And you look at your life in one moment and you say, how, how did I get here? Maybe you, you look back and you see God's faithfulness and his hand with you. And when you say, where, how did I get here? You, have, you answer that question, well, God's grace got me here. Or maybe... You ask the question and you look at your life and you see all the ways in which you made these wrong turns and you see the way in which you've messed up your life and you disappointingly you sit there and you ask, well, how in the world did I get here? Well, congregation, that is the core question that Lord's Day 3 asks. So last time we were looking at Lord's Day 2 and the main question there is, who am I? And rather than answering that question by saying, well, I'm a cabinet maker, I'm a teacher, I'm a, I, I'm a businessman or a, or a mother. The catechism focuses in that question on our relationship with God. Who am I? Well, before God's law, I am a sinner. I'm a sinner who sins not only against God, but also my neighbor. My natural leaning, my natural inclination is to hate God and my neighbor. And so we come to Lord's Day 3, confronted with the reality of sin and misery, with the brokenness and, the sins, and, and our sins in the world. And so the question here is, how did we get to this place? Why is it that I'm so naturally inclined to selfishness? Why is it that I'm so naturally inclined to bitterness, to resentfulness, to whatever, whatever sin that you may be thinking of? Was I always this perverse? Where did sin and misery come, and, and maybe who's, who's to blame for it? Now this afternoon, we're going to answer the question of how sinners became sinners, and how God provides a way back 
for fallen man. How God provides a way back to the life of blessedness that he had designed for humanity. The life of blessedness that he designed that he could live with man in perfect harmony. We're going to see how God provides restoration for fallen man. And so that brings us to our theme this afternoon. God provides the way back to blessedness for fallen man. So first we'll look at the life of blessedness God created, and then second, the life of blessedness man destroyed, and then third, the life of blessedness that Christ restores. So if you ask various people, you know, why is there sin and misery in this world? You'll get a, a bunch of different answers. You know, when asked, how did we get here? How did we get to this sinful situation that we're all in? Various people will say different things. You know, some will point to the government. Will they say, well, you know, it's because we have the liberal government or we have the labor government. And well, it's because they don't enact various policies. And if only they did this or did that, you know, then we'd be in a better situation. Or maybe they point to those, you know, those Silicon Valley uh, technocrats and big businessmen with all their huge companies that kind of eat up the small companies. And they say, see, look, it's because of capitalism or whatever. Or maybe they answer the question and they say, well, it's because of the people in my life, you know, the negative family that I have in my life. That's the reason why I am who I am. And so how did I get here? They answer that question by looking to other people. I'm not to blame. It's not my fault. Rather, it's, it's the way the world is. And more importantly, it's the way of other people. That's why I am where I am. I'm not responsible for it. And some would even say, you know, we're like products. If there's a problem with the product, maybe just look at the producer. Look at the person who made it. And so maybe it's God's problem. That's the reason why we're in this situation. However, that's not the answer that Adam and Eve would give if they were asked that question. Now just think, of, think back to Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4, especially Genesis 4. You have Cain who becomes seethingly jealous of his brother Abel. And Abel's sacrifices are pleasing to God. But in the end, God refuses Cain's sacrifices. And then his jealousy becomes so great that Cain kills his brother Abel in cold blood. Now congregation, could you imagine Adam sitting there digging the grave of his son? And what he would have thought. How in the world did we get here? Did we get to this point? Because that's not the world that he knew. He knew a completely different world. He knew a world where Eve and himself, they never fought with one another. He knew a world where they never put themselves before each other, where there was no blame shifting and and excusing and and justifying sin. He knew a, a place where relationships thrived and flourished, where there wasn't selfish competition. He knew a world where work wasn't toilsome, wasn't brutal, but it was rewarding. He knew a place where obeying God was was life-giving and not drudgery. You see, brothers and sisters, Adam couldn't look at God and blame God for the situation he found himself. Because God created the world to be a totally different place than that. God created the world good. That is why we read from Genesis 2. God created this beautiful place for man to be and to live in harmony, to experience the blessedness that our catechism speaks, out, speaks about in that first, first answer. 
And that was a life of intimate fellowship. If you look at Genesis 1 and 2, it's all about the goodness of God's creation. And if you look at the very the first uh, part of Genesis, we, we read about how the earth was, was without form and void and how darkness was over the face of the deep. Well, the word for void, it speaks about an uninhabitable wasteland. It speaks about utter emptiness, chaos. Like this was a place that was totally unsuitable for life. And then God speaks. And then light shines. And then there's seasons. And then... Uh, water is divided from the land. And then in the land, there's all sorts of things that spring up. And in the water, there's all kinds of life that is teeming there. It's this beautiful place. And all through Genesis 1, you read the constant refrain, and God saw all that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. It was good. And then Genesis 2, we read about how God made Adam and Eve... And it says there that the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. And the the next couple of verses they paint that further picture of abundance. This was where there was four rivers feeding this. This was a well-watered paradise, a well-watered garden. It was where there was minerals of all kinds. Place of abundance. And this was a place that God planted and just think of the imagery of planting something. You know, maybe some of you have started gardens. It's a, a better time of year to do that. It's cooled down. And so you think of a garden. A garden is a space where maybe you, get a, uh, you make a raised garden bed, and then you bring in some soil, and then you add some fertilizer, you add some manure, and you create this space so that whatever you plant in it, it will thrive. It will flourish there. And then you make sure it's well watered. And you do all those things to make sure that your plants that you put in there, they bear fruit. Well, that's, that's a little bit of a picture of what God does in the Garden of Eden. He creates this well-watered paradise for mankind to live, where they could dwell with God and where life would flourish and thrive. It was a beautiful place. But then if you create a beautiful space, that doesn't create beautiful people, much maybe to our dismay. And so if man was corrupt, if man wasn't good, but he was living in this good space, that wouldn't, that wouldn't do anything. And yet God created man, he created man good. So he was living in this beautiful space, it was very good, and God created man very good. They were made in his image and in his likeness, we read. The word image bearer, the imago dei, it means that man reflected God's character. In Genesis 5, we read of that same language in the likeness, image and likeness. It says there, when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. And then verse 3 of Genesis 5, it says, when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image, and he named him Seth. So if we want to understand what it means to be an image bearer of God, think of the phrase like father like son. So sometimes when we say like father, like son, we're talking about physical attributes. We're saying he is a spitting image of his father. Or often when we use the phrase, we're talking about character, like father, like son. And so for man to be the image bearer of God, it meant that man reflected God's character, like father, like son. And as 
The Catechism says here, what was that character like? That was true righteousness and holiness. God is righteous, God is holy, and he created man, man good, righteous, and holy. Man was morally perfect. Before the law of God, they were, they were righteous. They were in right relationship with God. And then if you think of, so article, uh, well, Canons of Dort, three, chapter 3, 4, article 1, it explains again the, the, how God created man. And it says there that he was adorned in his mind with true and wholesome knowledge of his creator and of all spiritual things. His will and heart were upright. All his affections were pure. And therefore, man was completely holy. That's how God made man. And he made him to have great intimacy with himself. They walked with God. Their life was God. And the very reason that God created man good and he created this beautiful space, which was also good, is so that, as the Catechism says, so that they could dwell with him. They could rightly know God as creator, heartily love him, and live with him in that state of blessedness. God created a life of blessedness so that man could glorify him and enjoy him forever. Now just imagine that congregation. Imagine what that would have been like. You know, sometimes you walk into a certain home and the people have set up the home very, very well. And it's warm, it's welcoming, and it just, it helps, it it nurtures relationships so that things flourish, so that there's good harmony in family, even just by the way they set it up. Well, Garden of Eden was like that. It was this beautiful space for man to live in. And then think of the intimacy that they had with God every day. You know, sometimes we experience that. We go through these bouts in our devotion life, and we have these moments where we're just so close to God where we enjoy spending time with God, where we, we read His Word, and we're not just reading His Word, but we're soaking in His Word. And we love it, and we're enjoying it. And we delight in it. And then the world that we live in, it kind of loses its shininess because we're just enjoying reading God's Word. We're just enjoying being with our Maker. Maybe you've had that moment. Maybe you've experienced that before. Well, that is what Adam and Eve enjoyed every day as they were in the garden. That was the life of blessedness that they experienced. They knew God, and they lived with Him, and they lived for Him. And so when they, when they answered the question about how did we get here, how do we get to this place where there's all this sin and misery, well, their answer wasn't God. They didn't look to God. And they said, it's your fault. No, because they experienced blessedness. They experienced this beautiful space. No, Adam and Eve, they knew that the life of misery that they were now living in, it was because of their sin against God. The origin of sin was not God, it was, it was man. What they enjoyed, they also destroyed. And that's what we see in the second point, the life of blessedness that man, and, man destroyed. So the Catechism says there, from where then did man's depraved nature come? It says, from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve. For there, our nature became so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. God had put man in, in the garden to work it, to keep it. And then he also had these trees. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now you have to remember that they had no reason to really eat that tree. Because where they were living in the garden, they had all these other trees. 
And so the reason why they reached out and grabbed that fruit, it wasn't because they were poor, because they were deprived of something, because God had created this amazing place. There was no reason for them to grab that tree in the first place. And then Satan comes along. He enters the scene, Genesis 3. And he says, did God actually say, you, sh- you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Which was a lie, but it was enough to get Eve to grab the bait. And then Eve mentions God's command, and in response he says, You shall surely not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Congregation, they were already like God. God had made man in his image and in his likeness. They already reflected his character. And so what this shows us is that the sin in the garden wasn't a matter simply of grabbing the apple or grabbing the pomegranate or whatever fruit it was. It was the fact that they were reaching out to grab the place of the Creator. This creature from the dust was reaching out to be God. They were trying to be God instead of God. So Adam and Eve, they took the fruit and they ate. They transgressed God's commandment, the good Creator, and they tried to establish themselves on the throne of their own heart and of their own lives. And they didn't die immediately, but they died spiritually. In that moment, as it says in the same article, Article uh, 3-4, Article 1, it says, In that moment he deprived himself of these excellent gifts and instead brought about upon himself blindness, horrible darkness, futility, and perverse of judgment in his mind, wickedness, rebelliousness, and stubbornness in his heart and will, and impurity in all his affections. Completely destroyed that life that God had created him for. And now he was corrupt. And totally corrupt. And that corruption, it spread. So it says there, there our nature became so corrupt that we're all conceived and born in sin. Now something, some, some people find that very hard to swallow. And maybe if you're new here in Southern River, you, you might find that hard to swallow. That we're so corrupt that we're conceived and we're born in sin. In many ways, man is a modern day Pelagian. So Pelagius was this teacher and he taught that mankind wasn't sinful by nature, but rather he sinned because of external influences around him. So he sinned because of the government. He sinned because of his family situation. He sinned because of the friend group that he was around. That was the reason why he became sinful. It wasn't because at core he's a sinner. So you sin because of outside influence, not because of the inside pollution of the heart. But the Bible says something totally different. So there's an element of truth to that in that, you know, if you think of Paul in 1 Corinthians, he says that bad company corrupts good morals. So there is a sense in which that is true. But it was still a lie. If you look at the, the, what the Bible teaches, we sang from Psalm 51. And there, David confesses how he was born in sin. He says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So in this verse, David looks back as far as he can go, and he sees sin. He looks back at his his brothers, his father, his father's brothers, his parents, and he sees sin. And he sees corruption. The corruption was radical. It went down to the root, down to the core of who we are. We are corrupt by nature. He recognized 
That as Psalm 58 verse 3 says, that he's like the wicked who are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. And our Lord Jesus Christ testifies to the same doctrine. He uses the example of trees. So notice, it's it's the example of nature. So he says there, he says in Matthew 7, Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes, or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, and a diseased tree bears bad fruit. If you have a bad tree, it will bear bad fruit, because by nature it is bad. It grows fruit according to nature. And then he makes it more clear later on in Matthew 15 where he says, it's not what's outside a person that defiles a man, but it's what's inside a person that defiles a man. It's from out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. This is what defiles a man. Sin affects all of us and affects us to our core. We're corrupt by nature. And so if you think of your life and if you look at yourself and you go, why is it that I'm often so unloving to the people around me? Why is it that I'm so hurtful and I say hurtful things? Why is it that I often desire what is wrong? Well, it's because at core you're a sinner. And you're only acting from the corruption of your own heart. That is what the Bible teaches. Now if you don't, maybe you're still struggling to believe this, then just look at what happens immediately after man falls into sin. You can't escape the corruption and the pollution of sin when you read Genesis, uh, the whole book of Genesis. So So Adam and Eve, they fall into sin, and things don't get better, they get worse. So right away, they feel shame, Genesis 3.7. Then fear enters the world, Genesis 3.10. Then blame enters the world, Genesis 3.11 through 13. Then there's pain, Genesis 3.16. And then there's relationship breakdown, Genesis 3.16. There's hardship, 3 verse 17. And then you look at Genesis 4. It's not like there was tons of generations before there was a murder. It happened in the first generation. There was murder. And then you look later on in that passage, you hear the the taunts of Lamech, his murderous statement where he says, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. And then things get so bad that we read in Genesis 6 that God looks down from heaven, he looks at the earth and he saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil continually. And God regretted the fact that he made man. And it grieved him. God looked at what the destruction that had come from the fall into sin and it grieved him. That was not the blessedness that God had created man for. No, it was was his world completely destroyed by the fall into sin. And even creation, it wasn't just that man was affected from the fall into sin, but it was also creation. Creation was now subject to futility. Or if you think of Romans 8, Paul says that creation is groaning under the weight of sin. It groans because of the effects. And so that's the teaching that we have here in this, in this Lord's Day. That man is totally depraved and because of his corruption at core in his heart, he's totally unable to do what is good. Everything and everyone is affected by the fall into sin. And so we ask, well, how in the world did we get here? That's the answer. 
We look at our sins and we look at the misery of our situation. How did we get here? It's because of the fall into sin. But then the beauty of the gospel is that we don't end there. God in his graciousness, he sent Jesus Christ. Because of his love for the world, he sent his son into the world to restore fallen creation. And that's what we see in our last point. The life of blessedness Christ restores. Now maybe some of you have wondered, why did Adam and Eve's sin get credited to me? Why is it that we're wicked, not just Adam and Eve? And that's an important question that directly impacts how Christ, uh, how Christ's righteousness comes to us. So the Apostle Paul answered this in Romans 5. In Romans 5 verse 12, he's answering this question. So he says there, he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, Catch that? Because all sinned. Adam, so what this means is that Adam didn't just sin by himself, but he sinned not only as the father of the human race, but also as representative of humanity. He represented humanity. And therefore, the guilt of his sin is placed on all of humanity, all of us. That's why we're also culpable for the fall into sin. And the reason why it's so important that we grasp that is because through Jesus Christ that is completely turned around. That's what Paul is speaking about here. He says there, now for if, this is 17, he says, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So he's saying, first Adam... Because of his sin, we all died. We've all sinned. We're all subject to death, subject to futility. And now because of the second Adam, because of his righteousness, in him we have life. Those who believe in him, there is life. That's what he says there in verse 18. Therefore, as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification for all men. Christ turns that around. He restores what, is, what was broken through the fall. So the first man sinned because all sinned. The second man, Christ, was sinless. And now those who believe in Jesus Christ are in him. They are sinless. So God sent his son. He sent the, the second Adam to restore what the first Adam destroyed. And this is what we see in one of the gospel writers. You see, when you read the gospels, there's different angles that the gospel writers take. And when you read the gospel of Luke... Luke makes this point when he writes about about the uh, genealogy of Christ. So if you look at Matthew uh, chapter 1, that's another genealogy that we get of Christ. And it starts from the beginning and he works his way to Christ. And then in Luke, Luke doesn't begin with Adam and end with Jesus. He flips it around. He starts with Jesus and he ends with Adam. He says there, Luke 3, verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And he's making a very strong theological point there. He's highlighting that Jesus is the new Adam. He is the second Adam. And then what do you see that immediately happens in Luke's gospel? Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes right into the wilderness to be tempted by the, the devil. 
So you think of the first Adam. He is created. He's created in the likeness and image of God and is described as the son of God. And then what, what do we read next? Genesis 3, he's tempted. Then you have the second Adam, Jesus. He's described as the son of God in Luke's gospel. The very next thing you read of, he's in the wilderness and he's tempted. But instead of failing like the first Adam, he triumphs where the first Adam couldn't. He was sinless. He did not succumb. And so that means that instead of receiving death, there is now life, resurrection life. We're no longer dead to sin, but we're alive to God. This is what Jesus has overturned for the fall. He has overturned what the fall had ruined. And so now, instead of us being totally incapable of doing any good, rather we can live according to our purpose, the way that God intended. We can come to knowledge of God our Creator once again because of the Holy Spirit at work in us. We can heartily love God and live for Him because of the work of the Spirit in us. We're dead to sin and now we're alive to God in Christ. And so we're not totally unable to do good as we were through the fall. But now through the powerful working of the Spirit, we are new creations. We can, more and more, although in weakness, live for God. You know, sometimes we can spend a lot of time in our depravity. You know, maybe you've heard it before. It used to be a bit more common where someone would say, you know, you say, how are you? And you respond, good. And then they say, well, that's not what my catechism teaches. And their point is, well, you're not good. The catechism tells that you're actually incapable of doing anything good. And that's true. If you don't believe in Jesus Christ, if you don't believe in Jesus Christ, then you are totally incapable of doing any good. It means that you're still subject to the death from the fall into sin. You're subject to, to punishment of hell. But if you're in Christ, as we are in Christ, we're new creations. We're new people. We're new men. We're spirit-filled believers. Christ is at work in us. And that means that although we struggle against sin, we struggle against its power, that it, we are no longer dead in sin. But rather, we're not the old, we put on the new self, which is, as Paul writes, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. You see that? Created in the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Through Christ, Christ restores us so that we become who we were meant to be. And so that means that through the power of the Spirit, we can once again begin to experience that heartfelt joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works, as the Lord's Day 33 says. And why? Because Christ has made us a new creation. Because Christ has risen again and he has sent the resurrected spirit into your heart and he restores what was broken through the fall. What was dead in the fall. He gives life. And so that means that although imperfectly we have a foretaste of that eternal blessedness that's in store for us. Christ restores blessedness so that we can have fellowship with God. We can have intimacy with God. I'll be that in weakness, more and more as, as the Spirit works in us. And so we can glorify God and enjoy Him more and more. But then the second Adam's work doesn't just finish there. 
Because not only does Christ restore mankind and free him from the power of sin, but he also has restored what was broken in creation by the fall. Remember, in the first point, God created this beautiful space, and that beautiful space was so that man could live in blessedness with him. And so God, in his goodness, he also restores creation. He restores creation so that we will live in that blessedness once again in the new heavens and the new earth. Creation will no longer be subject to futility. There will no longer be death. There will no longer be defects because of sin. And that's what we look forward to now as Christians. We taste a little bit of that now, that blessedness. But that's what we look forward to, that eternal blessedness that we'll have in the new heavens and the new earth. Brothers and sisters, just to close this sermon, I thought we'd read from Isaiah, Isaiah 65. Isaiah 65, this is a beautiful picture of the restoration that God promises. And in that passage, it's speaking to the Israelites who have transgressed God, who have gone wayward and were sent in the exile. Jerusalem was completely destroyed. And so this is a perfect picture of the fall into sin. It was completely destroyed. And then God promises that he is going to come and he's going to renew. And there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. So Isaiah 65, he says there, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be a curse. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the works of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. And dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy. In all my holy mountain, says the Lord. God is making all things new. He's going to restore us. And where he's going to bring us into that place of eternal blessedness. So that we would know God that we will live with him and will be completely free of the corruption of sin, will be completely free of all its effects. We'll sit there basking in the glory of God, enjoying him forever. In congregation, when we're there, we'll marvel and we'll say to one another, how in the world did we get here? And we'll think to ourselves, we'll know the answer. It's all Christ. It was all because of him. That's how we got there. Amen. Let's now sing in response hymn 74 verses 1 and 4.
Let's come before God and pray. Dear God and Heavenly Father, we marvel at the life of blessedness that you have in store for us. For the life that we can savor on this side of heaven, that we have just a bit of a taste. It gives us such hope in this veil of tears. Lord, you graciously lift our downcast eyes from the brokenness and the sinfulness and the misery of this world that we have caused. And you lift our eyes to heaven where there everything will be restored. We praise you that you have sent your spirit into our hearts. We thank you that through faith we are in Christ. And that means we're a new people. That we're no longer dead in sin, but now we can live more and more for you. We thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you provide a way out through Jesus Christ. And Father, without that, we would have been in the spiritual state forever. We would have been here in our misery. Because of Christ, we don't remain there. And this is not our lot in life because you are our portion forevermore. And therefore, we pray that you would help us to put off the old self and its desires. And rather that we would live as new creations en route for that glorious new creation. Father, we pray that you would bless us. Lord, we we can easily be distracted in the world that we live in. We can be distracted by our jobs and things that we're busy with. We can be distracted by our entertainment and what we watch. Lord, there's all different things that can distract us of this glorious future that lies ahead of us. And Lord, it can distract us from enjoying that blessedness that we get to taste when we experience community and fellowship and intimacy with you. And so we pray that you would help us to be captive to Christ. That we, would, that we would find harmony and that we would enjoy uh, moments with our Savior as we study the Word in our personal lives and as we pray to you, Lord, that we would experience that fellowship, that we can taste something of that glorious future. Father, we also acknowledge that you've called us to pray for all men. You call us to be subject not only for for our sake, but for your sake, to every human institution, whether it's to prime ministers or to civic officials. And so we pray this afternoon that you would be with our, our government. Lord, we lift them to your throne of grace, knowing that they need prayer. You have set them to govern in such a way that justice and peace may be maintained, and more importantly, that your church would flourish. And Lord, in these respects, we have many concerns. We worry about how the government is putting policies in place that are more and more godless, that they undermine life, they undermine the beauty of life that you've created. And there, we see more and more that there's society becoming more and more anti-Christian. And Father, we ask that you'd give us wisdom in the way to respond. Lord, we thank you that we still have democratic channels and that we can use those means and speak out in this world of misery. And Father, we know, that ultimately, but we know that ultimately that our hope is not in whether or not we get a liberal MP or a labor MP or whatever MP, but rather our hope is in the gospel, and that is the hope of this world. And so we pray that you would bless us, that we would be witnesses of that gospel, that we would live our lives in such a way that we would adorn ourselves with the gospel, that people would be won over without a word. And Lord, if, when, in, if you put us in situations where we can speak a word, we pray that your spirit would empower us so that we'd be able to speak of that hope, of that blessedness, that we would not keep this blessedness to ourselves, but we'd speak about it to others so that they can enjoy it as well. 
Father, we pray that you would continue to, to bless this, this congregation, bless, the, um, bless us as we disciple not only the whole flock, but also the new believers who keep coming. Lord, may, we, may they be built up in the faith. And Father, grant that if we would also look out for those who are on the outside, who are struggling, and that would be a community that looks out for one another. And so that we would cheer each other, each other on to that glorious hope of the future that you have in store for us. Father, please bless us as we enjoy the rest of this day, the rest of this resurrection day. We pray that we would we'd be filled with great joy in the resurrection of our Savior. Father, we bring all of this to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our resurrected Lord and King. Amen. You now have an opportunity to give of your thank offerings to the Lord, and the collection for this afternoon is for the work of mission work in, in P&G. And then after, we'll sing from hymn 73, verses 1 to 3.
receive the blessing of the Lord and go in peace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.